live. We're live from the couch. Welcome to by the brought to you by the letter. Welcome to Rosebuttle. Exactly. I'm Carly. And I'm Kelsey. Oh, we're we're starting out with the top intro. I need to I always forget, so now I'm like making sure that I always say it. Got it first. So welcome. Welcome. <laughs> we brought to you by the letter. This is a podcast where we talk about everything from A to Z, and we mean everything. I mean, you name it. Gold name Rush, it. Furbies, yep. um, the, Area 51, Bloody was, Mary, yep. D.B. Cooper, Jousting. The real ones call it da- him Dan Cooper. So. Yes, yes. Guys, <laughs> this show can range as far and wide as you want it to. Yep, that's right. So we're we're two best friends. We talk about everything. And um, so we're here to learn today. Mm-hmm. I am going to be doing the letter L. <laughs> L for learning. Learning. Love and learning. Um, can I talk about something first really quickly? Absolutely. So this morning I went to get coffee at like this local coffee shop and uh, I was in line and this person was like sitting at this table next to me and they go, Tyler's girlfriend. And I turn around and I was like, hey, I'm Carly. <laughs> because who the fuck talks to someone just by saying that like you know what i mean like there's a much more polite like it was very rude i felt because there's a much they not know your name though nope they didn't know my name if you don't know someone's name but you like know who they are there's a much more polite way to say hi to them than just by going tyler's girlfriend and i said he just needed to be like i literally hey are you are you tyler's exactly are you and hey three extra words but he like barked it at me as I was standing in line. And this person, they're known for being a little bit uh, rude. See, so, I, I don't know. I'm used to being summoned in very small amounts of words. So, But but <laughs> I, I was kind of bitchy back because I turned around and I was like, Carly, like that's my fucking name. Like, Dude. you know? <laughs> yeah. And then I knew this person's name because like I said, they're kind of notorious. And I said, what's your name, by the way? I don't think I know you. To Ooh, be real passy aggressive. But listen, to be honest though, I'm not saying just for, you know, women being defined by the men that they're with, because I have definitely, as a woman, done it to other women uh-huh. accidentally, yes. said stuff like that. So just be respectful We're all just learning. of people. Yeah. We're all growing. I mean, it's been like a year of growth. Yeah. A year and a half, a lot of years of growth. But basically, uh, after that exchange happened. I let Tyler know and I was like, yeah, they want to, this person wants to hang out with you. And he's like, I'm busy that day. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, what if they're listening to our podcast and they feel bad? They won't. That's fine. (laughs) They don't know. They don't know who they are. And if they do, they should be ashamed of themselves. And this is a call. Oh my gosh. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. You're putting them on blast. Yeah. On your podcast. But anywho, that's all. That happened to me this morning. So. Well, I was thinking about talking about how we both went to parties yesterday yeah. for the first time in a long time and oh my gosh it was magical i have never felt more alive it was really fun i like had such anxiety Did about you? going like i was like i haven't had to be a person for an extended period of time in front of like all the all these people and i was like kind of getting into like my old ways of social anxiety like way back mm. like before i started right. i had social anxiety and then i was like wait a second i know all of these people exactly this is like totally a safe like it's fine like i'm gonna be fine but at first it was just kind of interesting that i like reverted back to an old way of thinking and then 
I like mm-hmm. shook myself out of it and was like, wait a second, everything's gonna be okay. How many people were there? Probably like 30. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's probably the same as my yeah. party. Mm-hmm. But it was like crazy. You kind of like pick up where you left off, and everybody's like, so this past year, nothing really happened. Anyways, <laughs> what was the last thing you did that was nothing. productive in the past year and a half? <laughs> yeah. Well, so my friends bought a house. That's why we were right. at our party. But it was just really nice. It was really nice to see everybody and be normal humans again. That's great. Dude, 10 out of 10. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. You told me a little bit about this theme, but like, what is the... (laughs) I don't understand. Okay, so it's called um, (laughs) Rochella, cockroaches, plus Coachella equals Rochella. So basically, the whole theme is it's costumes encouraged. You're supposed to dress up in the theme of some sort of vermin, i.e. cockroach, mouse, rat... (laughs) I'm just Bug. imagining like Karen from Mean Girls. I'm a mouse. I'm a mouse. Duh. Duh. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> or and so the the description was like and slash or Coachella like music festival theme. Yeah. So you know my friends, very cute. They went for the music theme, but then they put flower crowns with like fake spiders on it or like temporary tattoos. So cute. Looked great. <laughs> Me on the other hand, I dressed as Papa Roach. As in the band, as in the the <laughs> cut my life into pieces. This then is my last resort. I was simultaneously hideous and great in the sense of I looked nothing like myself. I really knocked that costume out of the park. Yeah, I was gonna say you look you looked exactly like him. Yeah. And just like a little bit slimy. Well, I was going to say I looked like Brett Michaels and I don't even know who Brett Michaels is, but that's who I looked like. <laughs> so oh, actually his name isn't Papa Roach. That's not his name. His name is Jacoby Shaddix. Well, that's just really hard but, to say. So the only people that appreciated my costume. Th- now, this wasn't a party that I knew everybody at. The only people that appreciated my costume were the three people that I was friends with there. Nobody else fucking got it. One person so nice was like, I love your your style. And I was like, hey, this isn't I look this isn't fucking me. crazy. I was like, this isn't what I look like. I don't wear raccoon eyeliner. I don't have tattoos <laughs> on my face. I do not have a goatee like that is not, <laughs> this is not my real style. You know what? Thank you. I, I admire like- <laughs> the confidence. I admire the confidence. So, it was pretty fun. Yeah. I'm super tired and uh Ready to listen to... <laughs> ready to snuggle in for ready a good to little snuggle. listen. So I'm going to be doing L this week, mm-hmm. and I'm very excited about it. Do you want to guess? So you have in the past told me that one of your favorite like true crime stories is the Lindbergh kidnapping. Yes. So that's all I want to think that it is. Okay. So let me clarify a little bit. But the Lindbergh kidnapping, the reason that... I like am drawn to it so much is it because it was my first experience with true gotcha crime. like you know how in true crime world we talk about like what was the case or like the thing that kind of exactly broke the glass of reality for you and exactly. brought you to like this darker underworld of true crime exactly yes this is the story okay it is really sad so trigger warning there is you know a baby does die so we you know that's going to be talked about so if you don't Wait, so is that what you're doing? Yeah. You didn't 
even i had no idea i guessed it right yeah you guessed it right hell yeah i just wanted to clarify that like i'm not like oh my gosh this is my favesies like it's like it's just it was my first touch with true crime and like it shattered a lot of my innocence in terms of that part of the world Mm -hmm. so that's why i like was always fascinated by it because i'm like how could this happen to a famous person? How could this happen to a baby? Right. You know, like when you're a kid, you're like, everybody's untouchable. Nothing bad happens to babies. It, everything's mm, fine. Yeah. And so then it kind of kind of ruined that for me. Right. So if you don't want to hear about that stuff, feel free to skip over this episode or skip over the little portion where I talk about it because I mostly am talking about a little bit around it too. Okay. So. But yeah, so that's, I'm doing it. Sweet. Say the thing. Okay. Say the thing. So, Lindbergh kidnapping brought to you by the letter L. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the knowledge that I have of this is that I have heard the story before and don't remember anything. So, please tell me. Well, if nobody else remembers, I'm going to give you a full rundown. So, love it. Here we go. Charles Lindbergh, for those who don't know, is most famously known in the United States as the first person to take the world's longest solo non-stop transatlantic flight he was born in detroit michigan on february 4th 1902 when he was 20 years old he enrolled into nebraska's air flight corporation's flying school and he ended up having to leave to earn some extra money and gain some more flight experience mm-hmm. Um, to further his classes and studying. So he did barnstorming on the side. Okay. Definition time. Yeah, I was going to say. Barnstorming. Barnstorming was a form of entertainment in which stunt pilots performed tricks, either individually or in groups called flying circuses, devised to impress people with the skill of pilots and the sturdiness of planes. It became popular in the United States during the Roaring Twenties. So he was basically like a stunt man in the air. Hey, uh, Chelsea, uh, what you gonna... Oh, my God, never mind. I was gonna do, like, a transatlantic, like, accent, like, from the 20s, and... Nope, never yeah, mind. Yeah, see? Yeah, so you wanna go down and see the barnstorming yeah. show with me at the Like, farm? I just love the rowdiness. I love the... Yeah, it's no, cool. I love it. You said wing walkers, so they stand on the fucking wings of the plane. Yeah, while right? it's going nuts. Disgust. Are they harnessed in at any what do you think probably not probably not i can't confirm that but just from what i know about safety standards yeah (laughs) i don't think they did yeah that's crazy yeah so he was doing that on the side he also like used his flying skills to like take physicians to different areas like kind of like the first like emergency fly out kind of situation he reported to brooksfield military flight training for the United States Army Air Force in 1924. He had his most serious flying accident eight days before graduation when a mid-air collision with another plane forced him to bail out. And only Fuck. 18 of the 104 cadets who started the flight training remained in the class. So it's like a lot of people didn't get through and he like crashed a plane and he still got through. He was first in his class. <laughs> Which makes me a little okay, concerned. Okay, so not to be... This is just where my brain went. So of the hundred or so people, they didn't die, right? They just dropped out. <laughs> no. Okay. I don't okay. know. Maybe some of them did, but no. Not, that's not a, to my... That's not, where my brain went I know, at first when honestly, you said that. I was well, like, when I was looking, When I was reading this, I was like, I was looking for like only 18 of the 104 survived. Like I was yeah. looking for that, but no. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so when he, when he graduated, they didn't need any active duty pilots. So... He 
continued as a civilian aviator doing more barnstorming and flight mm-hmm. instruction. And then he was hired by the airmail service. So he was an airmail pilot that flew between St. Louis and Chicago. Delivered nice. mail. We stand. We stand. We love the mail system. Yeah, we do. We love it. At the age of 25, though, in 1927, he went from this nobody U.S. airmail pilot yeah. guy to a crazy star. He exploded overnight. Okay. So he won what's known as the Ortigue Prize for making the nonstop flight from mm-hmm. New York City to Paris in May of 1927. His trip lasted 33 and a half hours. It was over 3,600 miles or 5,800 kilometers. Yeah, so it wasn't the first one. The first one was actually done by two British aviators named John Alcock and Arthur Witten Brown. And theirs was only 1,890 miles. Mm -hmm. His was 3,600. So it was almost double. Yeah. Yeah. So people essentially reacted like he was like a hero and they had acted like he had walked on water. He's like just flown over it. He's almost like that era is like evil Knievel or something you know what I mean or not even that but he was like considered an American hero because he you know piloted right this like planes were very new then true yeah you know so it was like a big more than even like a stunt guy right it wasn't even the stunt part like yeah that was just like a side part that was a side gig to his like oh no I'm saying though I'm saying the reason I'm making that connection is because like it's probably really terrifying to some people to fly 3,600 oh, miles. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So that's absolutely. why I'm like correlating it to Got it. a big stunt. Got it. Like yes. that dude, however many years ago, who went into the stratosphere and jumped out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Broke the sound barrier. That guy. Yeah. Yeah. God. I can't. Well, there's that guy. Yeah. And that there- guy is yeah. like this guy exactly. in the 20s. Exactly. Yes. Like the New York Times printed an above the fold page wide headline that said, Lindbergh does it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. His mother's house in Detroit was like flooded with a huge crowd of like a thousand people that were part of newspapers, magazines, radio shows, all trying to give him job offers, you know, inviting him to think tanks and universities to speak. So he became like a crazy famous person. The French Foreign Office flew an American flag, which was the first time they ever Whoa. saluted someone who wasn't the head of state. Wow. Yeah, you'll see that, like, everybody, like, broke the rules for this guy. Like, people are starstruck. In June, after his flight, he was escorted by a military aircraft where President Calvin Coolidge awarded him the Distinguished Flying Cross. He was the first to receive this medal, but, like, it violated the rules of the medal. Like, he, (laughs) you're not supposed to be a civilian, I'm pretty sure, and he got it. And then in December, he was awarded the Medal of Honor, which, again is supposed to be awarded for heroism in combat. And so, so it, like, they're just like, what can we give this guy? Like, we're let's like, just give let's it to give him. Let's give him everything. Let's give him everything. He was also on the 10th. my firstborn? Here I you know, go. I know. It was like, okay. What else do you need? You need anything? Exactly. What can I get for you? Yeah. Medal of Honor? Like, what can we give this guy? Like, we'll just give him stuff. Like, I don't know. So they also put him on the 10 cent airmail stamp, which is, I think that's an appropriate yes. Yes. honoring of yes. that. And he was also the Time Magazine's first man of the year. Wow. Yeah. Appeared on the cover on January 2nd, 1928, and remains the youngest man of the year ever. Wow. Since. Yeah. How old was he? 25, you said? 25. Wow. Yeah, crazy. Wow. Yeah. I was 25 not too long ago. Yes. I didn't do anything good. 
And I'm going to quote the winner of the 1930 Best Woman Aviator of the Year Award, Eleanor Smith Sullivan, uh-huh. when she said, People seem to think aviators were from outer space or something, but after Charles Lindbergh's flight, we could do nothing wrong. It's hard to describe the impact Lindbergh had on people. Even the first walk on the moon didn't come close. The 20s were such an innocent time. People were still so religious. I think they felt like this man was sent from God to do this. And it changed aviation forever because all of a sudden the Wall Streeters were banging on the doors looking for airplanes to invest in. We'd been standing on our heads trying to get them to notice us. But after Lindbergh, suddenly everyone wanted to fly and there weren't enough planes to carry them. Wow. He was touted as a huge American hero at the time. Cool. He met a very nice woman named Anne Morrow and they were married in... 1929, in Inglewood, New Jersey. And they had their first child, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., in 1930. That's a strong name right there. Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. It's a lot. Yeah. So, unfortunately, now it gets to the sad part, so you may want to check Cue out. Cue the it. violin, somber music. Yes. So, at approximately 10 p.m. on March 1st, 1932, the Lindbergh's nurse, Betty Gow, found that the 20-month-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was not with his mother, who had just come out of the bathtub. Mm-hmm. So she went into the nursery. She couldn't find wow, him. Wow, he's also kind of 20-month. That's, like, he's not small. He no, was he's, kind a t- of, he's he like was, to- pushing toddler. Yeah, he's kind of like almost two. Then Gal ran to alert Charles Lindbergh, who immediately went into the child's room and he found a ransom note containing bad handwriting and grammar in an envelope on the windowsill. Mm. This is what the ransom note looked like, just so you have some re- visual reference. Oh. It looks kind of creepy. What's the thing in the corner? I'll tell you about it. Okay. So the ransom letter leads, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready... $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. It's all like very yeah. badly spelled. Where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notify the police. The child is in gut care. So also denomination specifications, like what? Are you having a yard sale and you need to make change or something? Like, why? Who the fuck knows? Yeah. Okay, Um, continue. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. So at the bottom of the note, there's like two overlapping circles that look like a Venn diagram with a red circle in the middle and then hole punches on either side. So we'll post this on our Instagram. It looks very creepy. Like, honestly, it looks like a like some (gasps) weird eye shit. Like, oh, no, 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 no. That also this happened in the the late twenties, early thirties, nineteen thirty two. Okay, that shit looks straight out of like a sci fi fucking alien movie or something. I know it's very weird. I want to know what it means, and I wasn't able to find out. Yeah, so it's it's creepy. Oh no. So at that point, after reading the ransom note, Lindbergh went around the house, and they found impressions on the ground under the baby's window showing that like a wooden ladder had been designed to get up to the Mm -hmm. baby's room and a baby's blanket. The word of the kidnapping spread really quickly. Hundreds of people like arrived at his property, which is like the worst thing that people could do. Yeah, for real. Leave me alone. Also stomping through a crime scene. (laughs) I was just going to say that. Along with police, well-connected and well-intentioned people arrived at the Lindbergh state. Military colonels offered their aid. They thought that the letter was written by somebody who spoke German as a native language, but this resulted in trampling a lot of evidence. 
Charles used his influence to control the direction of the investigation. He reached out to like Broadway person who had ties to the mob. He was like, tell me who did this. Like I need Mm. to figure out even like Al Capone was involved at one point. Like he offered his assistance. Wow. He'd be released from prison. So New Jersey officials announced that a $25,000 reward for the safe return of little Lindy. Mm, sad little Lindy. The Lindbergh family offered an additional fifty thousand, totaling seventy five thousand, or in today's money, one million one hundred and seventy two thousand dollars. Yes, which was a tremendous sum of money because this was in the midst of the Great Depression. Quick question. Mm-hmm. So the ransom note said, "Don't make this public," and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's. I don't know exactly how that works, but I feel like it's, like, always 50-50. It's like, well... Right. Like, how am I going to interact with... I think that's just stupid, but... Yeah. Random civilians were involved in trying to find this baby and, like, offering other ransom money, too, on the side. Like, it was... One woman got scammed out of, like, I think $100,000. Wow. There was a lot of people trying to help out. Hmm. But at the time, a specific well-known Bronx personality and retired school teacher named John F. Condon offered $1,000 for the kidnapper to turn the child over to a Catholic priest. He received a letter written by the kidnappers that authorized him to be the intermediary between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers. Yeah. They requested that he notify them in the paper when the note had been received. And then they sent like instructions about the size of the box and all this random shit. Like, who cares? Like to put the money in? Yeah. Got it. He did end up meeting a guy in like a very shadowy area and the only thing he could tell about him because he was hiding like behind like behind the shadows was that he was like probably a Scandinavian sailor and part of a gang of two or three men. The guy said that he was holding the baby on a boat unharmed and that he would be returned only for the ransom. He's like, well, how do I know you're not lying? And then he gave him like the baby's little sleeping suit that was like mm. custom made for him. And he's like, well, I can't. This doesn't confirm that the baby's alive. So like, I don't know what to tell you. So they received several more ransom notes. I think it ended up being nine. So then they talked about the ransom being delivered and all this stuff, but it never worked out. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of shitty. So the investigation lasted for two years. They conducted an extensive search of the home and the surrounding areas. One of the byproducts of the case was a bunch of misinformation because while people were good intentioned, people were uninformed and like were highly imaginative Mm -hmm. and spread rumors that weren't necessarily true. So that was a little annoying to the investigation. There were also other attempts of like fraud. And like I said, a bunch of people got scammed out of money. On May 12th of that year, it happened in March Mm-hmm. of 1932 right. so in may of 1932 two months later a delivery truck driver named orville wilson and his assistant william allen pulled off to the side of the road to relieve themselves when allen went to the grove of trees he noticed the body of a toddler mm. very sad the skull was badly fractured the body was decomposed there was evidence of scavenging animals And there were indications of an attempted hasty burial. They were able to identify the infant by the shirt that the baby was wearing. And he had like overlapping toes on his right foot. Mm. Yeah, it's very sad. It appeared that the child was killed from a blow to the head. In 1932, they estimated that the perpetrator was somebody who the Lindberghs knew. So suspicion fell on one of the household servants named Violet Sharp, but she actually ended up killing herself. Oh my gosh. Right before she was supposed to have her fourth line of questioning, she ingested silver 
polish <gasps> containing cyanide. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. But later her alibi was confirmed and the police were like really criticized for their heavy handedness in the whole thing. So do you think she committed suicide because everyone thought that she did it? Yeah, I think like I think the police were like really aggressive. And obviously there was like no I don't think there were any standards or if there were they weren't being enacted correctly so they said she seemed nervous and suspicious when they were questioning her and it's like yeah I would be nervous too right I get nervous with all police officers right even when I do nothing wrong I just get nervous exactly John Condon the retired school guy who was helping with it people also suspected him because they were Hmm. like why did you receive this note why did why are you the intermediary like what is what's that all about so they did like an official search of his home but nothing was found he like continued to do his own unofficial investigation which was kind of weird they called him increasingly flamboyant in public because he would claim that he saw like a suspect on the street and then he like was on a bus and he was like stop the bus and he would jump off and then try to chase these people it's like very weird like he was he seemed kind of like a what we what the kids now call a stan he was a Lindbergh kidnapping stan they believed he was being exploitative and he also agreed to like appear on a vaudeville act regarding the kidnapping yeah so he was he liked the attention yeah Yeah. so that's shitty too like Lindbergh also had to deal with that bullshit so they like were able to like track the ransom money that had been given to the guy where he never so they did give the money then they did give Mm -hmm. the money they did not receive the child obviously but they were able to track it and um, a gas station owner received a bill that looked suspicious and had a license plate number on it so they traced the license plate back to a guy named Richard Haptman who was an immigrant with a criminal record in Germany when he was arrested he was carrying a single dollar gold certificate and over $14,000 of the ransom money was found in his garage oh yeah so not good they were also able to tell where these bills were being spent before they caught him so they were able to tell that it was being spent on the route of the lexington avenue subway which is connected to the bronx in the east side of manhattan so they could like narrow it down to the neighborhood of yorkville which was like a german immigrant gotcha area gotcha when they searched his home they found a couple of additional pieces of evidence at that point, he was arrested, interrogated, and beaten at least once throughout the day and night, which mm-hmm. is, again, like I said, police tactics weren't great. Right. I mean. Right. Yes. No, no comment. Yes. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> sorry. No. So anyways, he was indicted in the Bronx on September 24th, 1934 for extorting $50,000 of ransom from Charles Lindbergh. And then two weeks later, he was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Two days later, he was surrendered to New Jersey authorities facing charges of kidnapping and the murder of a child. Based on the level of decomposition the body was in, they were able to determine when it happened. And a theory is that when they were taking the baby out of the window, they dropped the baby. Oh my God. I know. And so that's another terrible thing. It just, it feels so shitty because you're extorting people's hope. Yeah, for real. And a child is so innocent and it's just like, it just hurts on so many levels, you know? Yeah. It's, it's very like heartless. So that was like the part that drew me in when I was watching right. a documentary about this by accident when I was a child. <laughs> and I was just like, what? <laughs> and since then I had had 
so much anxiety about people breaking into my windows. I was like, I will never leave my window open at night. Oh, and yeah. it still have that anxiety. Yeah. yeah. What was the man who um, was indicted then? What was his name? Sorry. His name was Richard Hauptman. So did he ever admit to anything? I'll go into okay. it. Okay. Let's hear it. So he was charged with capital murder. And this was dubbed the trial of the century. I'm sure. So this was the big one for them. They had a bunch of evidence against him. They had the $20,000 in ransom money found in his garage. And they also compared his handwriting to the ransom letter writing. It looks pretty freaking similar. Like, I'm going to also post this on our Instagram. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it looks mm-hmm. it looks pretty close. Additionally, they found a piece of wood that was used to make the ladder, which they were able to tell. I find this so fascinating. It's probably super boring to some people, but they found a piece of wood in his attic that matched the type of wood, the direction of the tree growth, the milling pattern, the inside and outside surface of the wood, and the grain on both sides. It matched so many weird different things about the ladder. So I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool that they can tell that. I have no idea how. Secondly, they found John Condon's, the intermediary's phone number and address written in pencil on the closet door of Hauptman's home. So he fucking did it. Well, he said... I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and kept a little bit of a record of it. So maybe it was just on my closet. No, he did it. Shut up. (laughs) And I was reading the paper and put down the address. I can't give you any more explanation than that. So. No, you did it. That's. There you go. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. And there were some other weird things like. Witnesses have testified that he spent some of the gold certificates that Lindbergh had given him in the ransom. They had also seen him near the Lindbergh estate kind of during that time. He was absent from work the day of the kidnapping and the day of the ransom payment and had quit his job two days later. Yeah, he did it. Duh. Well, his counter <laughs> his counter argument was that he denied being guilty, insisting that the box of gold certificates was left in his garage by a friend named Isidore Fish, who had returned to Germany but died actually in 1934. Sounds like a super real name. <laughs> sound doesn't sound I think fake at all he might be i think he actually is real but i don't know if he said that like fish had owed him money and he had just left it with him to be like i need to store this somewhere mm-hmm. so you know anna hopman's wife admitted that she hung her apron every day on a hook like uh, that was higher than the top shelf and she couldn't remember seeing like the box there ever so she would like pass the box of ransom money every day technically and she mm-hmm. never saw it there so like She's saying like it was like potentially planted there. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting, right? Now I'm interested. Now I'm interested. You got me back. So <laughs> But she also could have been lying to save her husband. So Yes. Well, in a rebuttal, like witnesses testified that there's no way that Fish could have been at the scene of the crime, but also he'd had no money for medical treatments when he died of tuberculosis. So like if that were true, like that it was his money, he right. probably would have right. used it for medical treatment. Right. So in closing, they argued that the evidence against Hoffman was entirely circumstantial because no reliable witness placed him at the scene of the crime, nor were his fingerprints found on the ladder or the Mm -hmm. ransom notes or anywhere in the nursery. However, he was found guilty. It was like highly debated if this was all circumstantial evidence or if it was actually like he could be pointed for that crime. But on April 3rd, 1936, he was electrocuted 
Wow, that was kind of quick, actually, too. He wasn't in prison for a long time. I know. Well, that's the other thing. Also, I can't help but think that, like, maybe there was some hatred towards immigrants. Mm-hmm. So, sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So, I, you know, that could have played a role in it, right. too. The um, public's oh, view yeah. of everything. Well, they talked about how... Well, I'll get into it in a second. <laughs> so, Hoptman before his execution, turned down a large offer from Hearst newspaper for a confession and refused a last-minute offer to commute his sentence to a death penalty to life without parole in exchange for the confession. Does that make sense? Yeah. After his death, some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous questions about the way in which the investigation had been run and the fairness of the trial, including witness tampering and planted evidence. Mm -hmm. So twice in the 1980s, Anna Hauptman, the wife Mm -hmm. of the accused sued the state of new jersey for an unjust execution of her husband the suits were dismissed because the statute of limitations had run out and she continued fighting to clear his name until age 95 wow when she died in 1994 wow holy shit it's a lot since that has happened there have been a lot of different alternate theories about what happened some of them are not so nice and a little bit cringy so i'm like maybe (laughs) we don't i'm just gonna tell you and you can decide if we keep them a number of books have asserted that hauptman is innocent actually generally highlighting the inadequate police work at the crime scene Lindbergh's interference with the investigation the ineffectiveness of Hoffman's counsel and the weaknesses of the witnesses and the physical evidence a lot of people argue that since they can't conclusively prove it that his sentence should have at least been reduced to life in prison oh i i definitely yeah. agree yeah right it's like when you essentially have all the pieces right uh-huh. but you can't actually put them there it's right. like you have to well, there's so, I don't know. So when you were talking about the circumstantial evidence stuff, like, you know, we're the same. We like true crime shit. We listen to true crime podcasts. We watch true crime shows, like whatever. I still don't quite understand circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe it can't be used, right? Like nowadays, I believe that if there is evidence that is circumstantial, it cannot be used in a trial. No, it can. It can? Yeah, but it can't be the only reason that you convict somebody. That's the difference. Is like, you need to be able to, beyond a reasonable doubt, say that the person did this. So, but... Circumstantial evidence helps with got that. You. But okay. it's not like conclusively being like right you but are if there you have a case that's only circumstantial evidence and you have a jury that i'm sure is full of people who know this fucking case because it's oh yeah like because that's why yeah ev- of course they're gonna convict him right well, like of course that's what you would think with like oj simpson trials dude sure yeah yeah, yeah. like this was their oj simpson yeah that's i was gonna i was gonna say that earlier yeah, yeah. this is like huh oj simpson roaring 20s yeah for real crazy yeah several people said that charles Lindbergh might have been responsible for the kidnapping mm. so the father in jim bond's beneath the winter sycamores book it implied that the baby may have been physically disabled Aww. And Lindbergh arranged for the kidnapping as a way of secretly moving the baby to be raised in Germany. That feels like really shitty to me. I yeah, I like don't like that theory for a lot of reasons, but I also right. don't like this entire story, right? Which is why I'm telling it to you and ruining which is your why, life. And you also love it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Another theory is that he accidentally killed his son in a prank gone wrong. Which I'm like, shit, come on, yeah. Why would you prank an almost two year old? I don't even know what kind of prank it right, could be like right. this one i'm like eh. yeah. maybe there's some reasoning in the book it's the book is crime of the century the Lindbergh kidnapping hoax i don't know in another book 
published in 2012. It proposes that Hauptmann was part of a conspiracy theory with two other German-born men. The author claims that his father had witnessed the conspiracy being discussed at some point. Hmm. Again, there's not much information on this. I don't know about that. So the aftermath. The Lindbergh kidnapping case led to U.S. Congress passing the Federal Kidnapping Act, also known as the Lindbergh Law. This act made kidnapping a federal offense and allowed federal investigators the authority to pursue kidnappers across state jurisdictions. It basically made kidnapping across state lines illegal and made it a federal offense. Public fascination with the Lindbergh case continues to this day. Many books, movies, documentaries, and websites are devoted to a wide spectrum of conspiracy theories and alternate readings of the evidence and the trial's conclusions. And that is the story of the Lindbergh kidnapping, the thing that shattered my entire childhood and being. How old were you? Do you remember? I don't remember. I think I was 11. That's so young. <laughs> I know. At least I wasn't like six. True. Like, true, true, true. At least I waited a little bit. Yeah, like I think it was like randomly on like the History Channel or something yeah. and like my parents weren't they at the had, TV or something. They had the TV on and you were like, Whoa. No, I don't even, I, I might have been me. Like I was just ch- flipping through channels <laughs> and I was like, what is this? And then I'm like, wait, what (laughs) it was so it was heartbreaking i mean it's so shitty because a child's involved for in obviously you know obviously it's just shitty in general to me i found it very earth shattering at that time at 11 years old but there's also some like weird stuff that charles Lindbergh was involved in like at one point people thought he was like a nazi sympathizer Mm -hmm. it was like very i i didn't want to go into it because we're mainly talking about the kidnapping, right. but there is some background about like how he had certain attitudes towards race, that kind of stuff. So it's just touchy, touchy, yeah. touchy. So if you want to go further into them, he's a really interesting guy. He's what they call in the 20s a card. You're a oh, card. He's a card for sure. <laughs> a wild card. You never yeah. know where it's going to go. So what do you think? I don't know. I think... If, you know what? You know what I think? Here's what I think. What do you think? I think if Hauptman, you know, I believe he did it. I am actually believe his silence and refusing confessions and everything possibly has to do with an another more influential party. You know what I mean? That's kind of what I'm... Like, you mean he was part of a bigger organization? Exactly. I see. Exactly. So, like... You know, he's the one who took the fall for it and Mm -hmm. he's not talking because maybe whoever set him up to do this said, we'll murder your whole family if you talk, Hmm. even as you're walking to get to the electric chair. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if he is a true like narcissist, psychopath, whatever. okay, that makes sense. But it does not rationally in my brain makes sense why someone wouldn't just confess like just to save your life exactly i mean true but think about your life afterwards like you could never be a person again you would literally just be in a different kind of jail emotionally like yeah i mean yeah that's that's part of your life now you know that you were a murderer i mean i guess but but also i don't know i don't know that's that's my that's my thought on it to me it was like I don't know about this whole, like, electric chair craziness. Well, de- yeah, definitely. You know, like, maybe let's just do life sentencing. Like, especially with the, I mean, I think he did it. But, again, like, if it was necessarily the intent to kill the child, that's another thing, right. too. Like, Agreed. It could have been accidental, and I could see how it yeah, could have been Yeah, that accidental. makes sense to me as well. Yeah. So, it's like, 
usually I feel like now well I guess it's different everywhere but I feel like now more so if it's like intentional you know you get like first degree second degree like all that stuff Mm -hmm. it's like I think it was probably unintentional right most people aren't like I want to do that. Most people aren't like, hey, I really would like to murder a fucking baby today. Yeah. I really have. Like I'm, really, I'm mil- really jonesing for that right yeah, now. Yeah. Like, yeah. But I could see how somebody could, not that I would ever or anybody right. I know would ever, but I could see it more likely going to, I would kidnap a baby. Yes. For some sweet cash. Yes. Definitely. To, to make all my problems go away. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the terrible shitty story. Yeah, it was a good story. Yeah. Good. Honestly, we should probably keep looking up like Charles Lindbergh. He's confusing because like the Nazi sympathizer thing. Then I read he toured Nazi concentration camps at the end of the war. And he was like, this is the worst thing ever. Like this should never happen to anybody kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's just very confusing. Anywho. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, so, that, was, that was a really good story. And um, now we're sad. And now we're sad. But hey. Thanks for listening. We appreciate y'all. Yeah. If you like more true crime and depressing things, we can talk about it more or we don't have to. Yeah. So just, you know, hit us up with your thoughts. Definitely. Please also uh, rate, review, subscribe. Yes. And share. And share. If you have Spotify, you can follow. So you get a little like bloop when a new app comes up on Spotify. Yep. Um, and I think you can rate on Apple Podcasts. Yes, you can. Which is the best one. So yes. guys, just do it. You yeah. know, like if you love us, show show it, you know, yeah. sing it loud, sing it proud. Yeah, that'd be Write awesome. Write a review. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at By The Letter Pod. Or email you can email us. us at By The Letter Pod at gmail.com. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Uh, me, 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 moo, moo, moo. That's it, I think, right? Yep. Well, closing statements. Great talk. Great chat today. Sorry for the depressing (laughs) subject. Um, Hopefully, Carly is picking a better one for next week. Yes. Good. See y'all next week. All right. Later. Bye. Bye.